Is evil winning? Is evil winning? God, that's kind of a dark, heavy title of a message. And is there an answer to the reality that some people would take the attitude that evil's winning? You know, when we look around in the world, and I mean the world in a global sense, but also don't, you know, close to home, in our own nation, what do we see? It looks like evil is manifesting almost everywhere in almost every form, and it's winning. You know, the international turmoil. You know, I read this morning, I uh, kind of got off on a rabbit trail in my time of preparing this morning, and in Matthew 24, 6, where it talks about there will be wars and rumors of wars, where there will be nation turning against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and that there's going to be earthquakes and famine. And then it says, and this is only the beginning of the birth pangs. It tells us that the gospel's got to go forth. And you look what's happening in the world in the international turmoil. Wars and rumors of wars turn on TV. That's all you hear about. You look around and you see economic turmoil. They're not talking about wars. They're talking about economies collapsing. ISIS is in the news just about every day. And other forms of evil, like ISIS. You know, there's basically almost like a genocide going on in parts of the world and hardly being talked about in most circles. It's like evil is almost becoming the norm instead of something that should be removed and eliminated. Christian persecution, we know in the Scriptures that it's going to happen. We know there's going to be suffering. But when you see the kind of persecution that we're seeing nowadays, I mean, we see with the technology, the impact of this kind of persecution of implanting fear in the hearts and minds of people and Christians. When you see 21 Christian men march down a beach and they kneel and they get their heads cut off in the name of something. There's unbelievable evil everywhere. There's hatred prejudices that are seem to be rising up that we thought maybe were gone or going away at least. People are living in fear, mental anguish, sickness and disease. Seems to just We seem to think we've got things figured out in that area and all of a sudden there's new diseases, there's new sicknesses popping up out of nowhere, quote-unquote. Evil in every direction. And at the very least, in our nation, we say, well, golly, we're pretty fortunate. Most of that's somewhere else. Well, it just looks different somewhere else. There is oppression in the people of our own nation and in our own churches, in our Christian community. Oppression, fear, worry, anxiety, shame, guilt. The enemy, Satan, is having a field day with the church. And when I ask the question, is evil winning? Sometimes, even in the church, even amongst Christians, you have a hard time coming up with an answer that's no, it's not winning. It looks like it's winning. Addictions. You know, one of the, one of the greatest problems in young people, and I'm talking junior high, senior high, has become depression. There's something wrong with that. Depression. 
for our teenage kids. Evil in the world. And he's evil winning. And what's the cause? What's going on? What is the cause of all this evil? You know, the cause of of all this evil is the same, and it's the only thing that can keep a Christian from experiencing victory and fellowship with God. It's the same thing. It's the same cause. It's the only thing, it's the only cause that can keep us as Christians from being filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What is that thing? What is the cause of all of this stuff? Well, it's easy. It's summed up in one three-letter word. Sin. Sin is the cause of all of that. Are we losing? Is evil winning? If sin is the cause, if sin is the root enemy of all of this evil, is evil winning? And for a Christian, the answer should be a resounding no. Jesus died on a cross, was buried and raised again to defeat the power of sin and to defeat the power of death. Evil is not winning. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, we need to have a firm foundation that we stand on from the Bible whenever we say things like this. And the reality is, evil has already lost. Do we live that way every day? Do we act like that every day? Do we believe it every day? Evil has lost. Satan has lost. God, good God, has already won. So what in the world's going on? Well, it reminds me of an enemy that knows they've lost the war, so they're launching every kind of attack that they possibly can as a last-ditch effort to destroy as much as they can before Jesus comes back. So what are we supposed to do? Just sit back and wait for Jesus to come back? No. We are His army. We forget that. Sometimes, Christians, we want to be meek and mild and all about love and compassion. And we need to be all about love and compassion, but we're an army clothed in love and compassion. But we're still a war. We can defeat the evil even if it starts out one person at a time. There is a way that we can defeat evil. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to share a couple of scriptures and then I'm going to do something a little different in terms of what I hope is equipping. A number of the leaders in the church, uh, because of the generosity of all of you people, we, we, the staff was up at a conference this last weekend, and a number of the other leaders and young leaders in the church also paid, all their, paid their own expenses to go to this conference on equipping. And if we're an army, and if we're at war, we need to get equipped and be equipped so we don't get clobbered so that we can go out there and take ground for the kingdom of God. Evil evil will only prosper as long as good doesn't do anything about it. You know, that's the only way. That's what's so dangerous about the silence that's out there when we see all this evil taking place. That's the danger when we're seeing end times being played out that, that Christians have just quit talking about it because everybody thinks we're stupid, weird, nuts, whatever. We're Jesus... Freaks, Bible thumpers, whatever. And if you're not being called any of those things, get your butt in gear and do something. Because you should be. They're going to call us those things and worse if we're doing what the Word of God says. And that's okay. As long as we are still clothed in love 
and compassion and the armor of God. Because it's going to be messy. But we have the ultimate weapon. In Isaiah 54, 17, it says this, No weapon that is formed against us will prosper. If you look around the world, you're thinking, Oh yeah, that's not working so well. No weapon formed against us will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That's our heritage as Christians, as the children of God, as His servants, His loyal servants of the King of Kings. It's our heritage that no weapon formed against us will prosper. So we've been equipped. We've been armed. Do we realize it? Do we know it? Do we act like that? We can overcome all of this with one simple weapon. Isn't that amazing? One simple weapon. We can, we can overcome all this evil. One, one weapon. It's called the gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It will change everything at a personal level for you and I when we embrace that gospel. And then when we take that gospel and go to work as soldiers in the army of God with the gospel and take that gospel out and confront evil with the gospel, we can change the environment. Seriously, the world could be changed. Everything could change. The gospel has the power. Now we know as Christians, if we know the Bible at all, we know it's not all going to change. In fact, in some time, in some way, it's going to get worse. But we're not to give up. And we're not to get sucked in to that attitude of defeatism. We're to go forward. Paul, when Paul talked and when Paul wrote so many of his letters to the churches, when he talked about who he was and what he was doing, he wanted to make sure that everybody knew he was not worthy. He was not worthy. He did not deserve to be in God's army. He did not deserve to be one of God's generals. We don't deserve to be in God's army. We don't even deserve to be the lowliest of privates in God's army. But because of the gospel and what it does in the life of one who takes the gospel and receives it and believes it by grace, we are now in his army. And we can win. We win because he's already won. We can take ground. It's going to be messy. You know, comfortable, comfortable, comfortable Christianity isn't really Christianity. Not a very pleasing thought, is it? And you thought, gee, if I just get saved, it'll be so sweet and so smooth. It's not. It's war. And we're in the army whether you want to be or not. So you're either going to get run over by a tank or you're going to start taking ground. And it's up to you. We have the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was a murderer. He was trying to do everything he could to stand against Christ. He was a pawn in the the hands of the enemy until Jesus got a hold of him 
and explain to him the gospel. And once he got it, he says, that's all that's matter. That's all I'm going to preach. I am going to preach the gospel wherever I go. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. To every single person who believes, the Jew first and then the Gentiles, and everyone, it's the power of God to bring about change in individuals, in communities, nations, and the world for that matter. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Matter of fact, he didn't send me to do any of that other stuff I do. He sent me to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom. You ever noticed when you start preaching the gospel, if you know what that is, people think you're really simple-minded and gullible and stupid. Because it's not human wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What are we being saved from? At a personal level, first of all, we're going to talk mostly personal with this whole gospel message. What does it mean to be saved? Well, technically, the, the definition of salvation is simply this. That we are being saved from or escaping from the righteous judgment of God. We're being saved from that. Our righteous God, we deserved death. But through what Christ did, through us becoming saved, through salvation provided through Christ, we have, we've escaped that. And if we just leave it right there, we're, we're selling it way short. Because we are saved for a purpose. Yes, that we get to spend eternity with Christ. Yes, that we've been redeemed. Oh, it's restored, reconciled. Yes, all of that. But to go to work, to become more Christ-like, and go into the world and make disciples of all nations. It's not just to sit back and try to be comfortable Christians in the midst of what's taking place in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our houses, nation around the world. When we look at the gospel, that part of the gospel that opens the door to salvation is really what it does. It opens the door. We get saved. We're born again. When we're born again, guess what happens? The Holy Spirit moves in us. It lives in us. The power of God now dwells in us. That's a pretty cool thing. We now have the power of God living and dwelling in us. The power of God that spoke in the worlds and the universes were all created. The power of God dwelling in us. Why? To, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. To go and advance the works and do the works of the kingdom. Jesus' ministry is different now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father praying and interceding for us and we're to continue the works of Jesus and His ministry here on earth. We're to be going about doing what Jesus did. Spreading the good news. Laying hands on the sick. Casting out demons. We're supposed to be doing that. The church is supposed to be doing that. Man, in lots of churches, that isn't even talked about. And if you do, they ask you to politely leave. 
But that's what we're called to do. If the Bible's true, and I hope we think it is, we are to be doing that, and that all starts when the gospel opens us up to that born-again experience, to be born in Christ. The gospel simply means good news. Now, I'm going to share with you what uh, some of you maybe have heard of the Ryrie Bible, Dr. Dr. Charles Ryrie. You maybe pronounce it Ryrie. Ryrie. Anyway, he, teaches, he used to teach. It still does. I believe he's still alive. Anybody know for sure? Nope, then I can say anything. Good. But he, te- he was teaching a class on, called soteri- Soteriology, basically on salvation, the doctrine of salvation. And this is what he did to the class, and I would love to do this with you, but I don't know if you all have paper and pencil. But let, here, let's, just, let's, per- let's role play for a second. We'll see just how equipped we are. If I asked you or told you that you have less than 60 seconds to share the gospel message with a very loved family member or friend that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've got 60 seconds to do that. What would you say? What would you do? Dr. Ryrie told his class, okay, write it down, quick. You've got 60 seconds. Quick, write it down. What are you going to do in 60 seconds? What are you going to tell them? You've got 60 seconds. Their eternal destination is determined by the next 60 seconds and what you say. Wow, can you imagine if that was really true, what would be happening in your heart? My heart would be pounding. My chest would be going crazy. I wouldn't be able to hardly breathe. I'm thinking their eternal destination is dependent on what I do in the next 60 seconds. Man, those 60 seconds would fly by, I'm afraid. What would you do? Can you share the gospel in 60 seconds or less? Do you know what the gospel is? If we don't know what the gospel is and we can't share the gospel, how are we going to lead anybody into salvation? Dr. Ryrie told his class, he said, I'm not going to give you a pass-fail on what you wrote down, but we're going to judge it this way, heaven or hell. We're going to judge it dependent upon the outcome of what you just shared. Would it get them into heaven if they believed and accepted what you just told them, or would they go to hell? Boy, that's heavy, isn't it? That's, that's challenging. What do you do with that? Would you be able to, to simply summarize just the, the gospel? Don't add anything to it. Don't dress it up. Just lay it out there. You know what? You should be able to do this about eight seconds. About eight seconds. Turn with me if you have your Bibles, or it should be on the screen. I think I put it in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, and he says this. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know in, in chapter 13, it's all about the love chapter. We talk about the love. Love is, is gentle, kind, all this stuff. And then he goes into chapter 14 talking about the church, and he talks about tongues and prophecy. And then he comes to chapter 15, and he says, Now I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. The gospel, that's where you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
Unless you didn't really believe. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Here it is. I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the important thing to remember, Paul's saying. This is it. The important thing which I received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. The Gospel. In eight seconds or less. And then it goes on and says, After that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. Let's see, in verse 5. And then He appeared to Cephas and to Peter and the twelve and then to the 500. The point is, when, when Paul is writing to Corinth, right here, he took the Gospel. And he just said, this is it. There, there, he, he, he trimmed all of the, the, the fat off of it, so to speak. But he didn't cut away any of the meat. He says, here's the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried in the tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Period. There's the gospel. How many of you can now share the gospel in eight seconds? Write those words down if you think you'll forget. That's the gospel in its purest, simplest form. The gospel. Now, when you present it that way, it will open the door to probably some questions. And you might have to expound on it a little bit. We might need to explain who Jesus Christ is. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there in America, in Minnesota, that don't know who Jesus is. We are in a a time when all of those little Bible Bible stories we think everybody knows, they don't know them. You talk about Jesus, they might have heard about it, but they don't know much about him, if anything. Depending who they've talked to, they, they really may have some wrong ideas of who he is. So we might have to just throw it out there. And again, just a few verses. And if you want to write it down the verses, first, or John 1, 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who was? The Word. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? Jesus. Who is this Jesus that died? He is the Son of God. He's the eternal God. He has been around from the, before the beginning, and He'll be around after the end. This is who He is. He is the Son of of God. God in the flesh. That's who He is. He came sinless. John 20, 30 and 31 says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John is writing about, he says, Much as I've written, I didn't even scratch the surface yet. I could write and write and write and write. But what I have written, I have written with a purpose. And what does he say that is? So that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing in Him, you may have life in His name. That's who Jesus is. This is not complicated for us to share the Gospel and then expound on the Gospel enough that they can make a reasonable and rational and logical decision whether they want to reject or accept the truth. And that's, all, that's what we're supposed to do. We can't save them. That's God's job. But he's told us, this is what we're supposed to do. Can we do it? As a church, we need to be confident. Every single person in here should have total confidence that you could lead someone to Christ by using that powerful weapon called the gospel. 
Once you tell them who God is, you might have to show the person that they actually need a Savior. And you can just go to one scripture if you want. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you can expound on that as, as much as they ask you questions. But that's it. We've sinned. Fallen short. It's over. We need a Savior. And then you may have to explain to them that it's by faith. It's a gift of grace that they can't earn. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, verse 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of any works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift. And trust me, if you haven't led someone to Christ, you're going to need to explain these things that you and I hopefully think are really too basic. Come on, Mike, this is too simple. Everybody knows this. No, they don't. They don't know this. And these are the words of life. These are the words that will break evil in the life of a person. If you've been saved, these are the types of truths that saved us by the grace of God through faith in what they say. And you may even get to re- need to remind them of the consequences of their sin and rejecting what you're telling them. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Eight seconds you can share the gospel and then however long the conversation goes on and the questions they might ask, you need to have some very simple, clear answers. You can see if you get to go through this in a conversation with someone, it doesn't need to take three hours. You can share it in a matter of five minutes, maybe ten. And if they show interest and ask, praise God, but our job is to, to share the truth. We are planting the seeds of the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit's job then to bring about the harvest. One of the things we heard at the conference today and nowadays in our culture, they used to say it took eight to ten meaningful encounters with the good news of the gospel before someone would make a decision. Now statistics, quote-unquote, whatever that means, say it takes 20-plus times. But hey, if you and I aren't doing it, we aren't getting them closer to that 20-plus time. We need to be prepared to share the gospel. It's a simple message. If you took that test in Dr. Ryrie's class, would you have passed? Would the outcome have been heaven or hell for that person? Just think, as a Christian, if someone would come to you and say, I I need to know what you know. I I need to become a Christian. I want to become a Christian. I don't even know what that means, but I, I want it. Something, something inside me tells me you've got what I want. And then you stand there and look at them like a deer in the headlights because you don't have a clue what to say. If that's the truth, boy, are we as a church failed in equipping you to do the work of the ministry. We need to, as individuals, take personal responsibility to be prepared to handle that opportunity. Because as things unwind and things get worse and worse, they're going to be looking for hope in the world. 
They're going to be looking for something. These horrible things that are going on in the world are things that God will use to open the door for the gospel to go forth in those different areas. The Bible's clear that he is, he's going to build his church on the blood of the martyrs. As, as horrible as martyrdom is, his church is going to prosper. There's history will tell us, I forget the guy's name, he was leader of Romania. He said, there is no God, and there's no God in Romania, and he's gone forever. Was it Chuchevsko? Does that sound right? Anybody an expert on Romania? Man. He died and got dealt with harshly. And Christianity is exploding. Different countries. It's happening all over the world. The gospel. We want to see people born again by the Spirit of God. But we don't want it to stop there. Because the Great Commission didn't say, go and lead people to Christ. Amen? Does that sound heretical to you? It doesn't say that. It says, go and make disciples. Our goal, our job as a church, as a Christian, as a parent, we are to make disciples. We need to do all that we can to give them what they need to know so they can make a decision to accept Jesus Christ and become born again. And then we need to pour into their lives so that they can go out and lead other people to Christ. That they can go out and share the good news of the gospel. And the army continues to grow and the kingdom of God advances. Instead of acts like it's in retreat, we all come to our church on Sunday morning like it's a bunker that we can come in for a safe place. And that's awesome that it's a safe place. And it's a place we can come and get refreshed and charged up. But hopefully we also get challenged by one another. It's not that we're looking to put you know, notches in our belt or something. We led somebody to Christ. That's not it. It's a wrong attitude. But I sure want a lot of notches in my belt. Because each one of those notches would represent a life that's been changed by the gospel. A life that was going to be going to hell, separate God from ever, forever. And now they're going to experience eternal life in Jesus Christ and they're going to be in the presence of God forever. We need to learn how to share this. What do you do with this? What do you do with all this information? Well, personally, first of all, if what I've said, you're not saved... You need to take to heart what I was saying and apply it personally, receive it personally. We are a sinner. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's a gift of God by grace. He went to a cross and died on that cross for my sins. He was buried, fulfilling prophecies in Isaiah. He was buried, but he was raised again from the dead. Victory, proof, evidence that his sacrifice was acceptable in the Father's eyes. You know, when we got saved, we weren't saved from the devil. We weren't saved from the world. We were saved from the righteous judgment of God. In his perfect justice, that's what we got saved from. In a broader sense, we need to spread it, spread the news. And I'm going to share with you, and it's a little bit of a longer story or analogy, but sometimes I think it helps if we can sort of maybe paint pictures with certain people or maybe even for us, we see a picture, we can, we can relate to something. It's almost like Jesus telling a parable. But I want us to all go on a cruise ship. If you've been on one, you probably think, all right, I've never been on one. 
But we're going to go on one right now. You can call it the Titanic if you like. <laughs> but suppose you're on this cruise ship. It's beautiful. It's evening. The sky is filled with stars. There's a sea breeze coming. And you're walking around the deck and you're seeing people going about all of their business, enjoying what they're going to enjoy, heading to those massive buffets of food, maybe going to go down and listen to the music, whatever. They're enjoying it. And then, then all of a sudden you notice there's this other group of people and they're acting a little bit strange. They're not, they're, for being on vacation on a cruise, they're acting a little strange. There they are over by some little tiny rubber raft things and they're all putting on these really uncomfortable life preservers. And you're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And finally, somebody comes by and they see that you're looking a little confused and they hand you a note, a little piece of paper. And on the note, it just simply says these words. The shimp is sinking. And then they tell you, that's from the captain. Now you look around and everything looks normal. Things are normal the way it's supposed to be. People are going about what you would normally go about and do on this wonderful cruise, this cruise ship. So what do you do when you get this note that says the ship is sinking? Well, a logical thing would be to say, I wonder if this note is really from the captain. Is this note really true? I mean, the importance of the note completely relies on the truthfulness of the note. So you would begin to wonder, what do I do now? I don't know. Is it true or isn't it? And I look around and everything's fine and, and I've got all these other people saying, don't worry, everything's fine. Enjoy the cruise. Go about what you were going to do. No problem. Okay. All those people can't be wrong. But then you run into the other one. On the other hand, there's this few people that are walking by saying, get over there and get your life preserver and get in the, the raft. The boat is sinking. Sinking. What do you do? Is it really sinking? We need to consider the options. And I'm going to just share three options with you. One, you could do nothing. You could do nothing. Now that is the poorest one of the three. Because if I don't believe the boat's thinking, I'm not going to just do nothing. I'm going to go back and have some fun. I'm going to go on and enjoy the cruise. I'm going to go back to my cabin where all my stuff is and make sure it's all okay. I'm going to go and, and have fun and party with the people that are having a great time down there where the music's playing. I'm going to go and, and enjoy life. That's option two. Or option three, we could decide that maybe the message is correct and we should go get in the lifeboat. Now that might seem like a no-brainer. But I'm not sure. Now if I go get in the lifeboat, I've got to put on that uncomfortable life preserver it's going to feel a little restricted. It's way more fun not having that restriction on. I can't enjoy myself. And then I've got to leave all my stuff behind because I can't bring it all and put it in the lifeboat. And if I get in the lifeboat, I've got to submit and listen to and obey the guy who's in charge of the lifeboat. 
all of a sudden, I'm not sure that sounds all that inviting. All the people are telling me you're not going to put on that restrictive life preserver, are you? You're not going to walk away from all of the blessings in our world today, are you? You're not really going to submit and live your life to the captain of the lifeboat, are you? I'm not sure. Sounds like I'm giving up a lot. I still got those people telling me there's nothing to worry about. The warning is not authentic. The note was a forgery. The captain really didn't write it. They know all kinds of people who have told them that it's not true. Which should I believe? I think I'll go with that. Now, this is where hypocrisy really settles in into a story like this or the truth, the gospel message, that someone would trust the word of anyone or any group of people with no evidence who's saying, everything's fine. Come on. I've checked out the boat myself. It's good. It's okay. It can't possibly sink. Although couple thousand feet below them, there are a number of ships that have sank. The depths and darkness of the sea. What do you do? Should we or shouldn't we? You know, everybody rebuts the warning saying the ship is sinking. And you better get your life jacket on and get in the lifeboat. But you ever notice no one seems to rebut the person that come by and say, don't worry about it. It's a big ship. It's fine. People have been saying ships are going to sink forever. Almost 2,000 years. And it's still floating. Nobody rebuts that, do they? If we come with the truth of the Word of God, the evidence of Scripture and all the other evidence that supports Scripture, they still question the warning. People could see a hole in the boat and see the water rushing in and have a number of people telling them, don't worry, it's a big boat. It can take on a lot of water. Matter of fact, ballast is good. And they would believe that instead of get off the boat and put on the life jacket. Hopefully you can see how this is an analogy or can be an analogy for sharing Christ with someone. And maybe you need to share a story like that to get them thinking about the simple truths of the gospel. They are going to make a choice just as you've made a choice. Everybody makes a choice. It's either the wrong one or the right one. And with Christianity, there's only one right choice to accept the gospel at face value realizing that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah and that he died for my sins was buried in a tomb but was raised from the dead and because of that we have a new life in Christ evil no longer has a stranglehold on us the power of sin and death has been broken You know, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Brian shared a little bit, and part of it was about multiplication. 
Can you imagine if each one of us here just went out and in the next six months led one person to Christ, invited him to the church that they might be discipled. And only six months later they did it with somebody else. And Brian went through some of the math. We could change southwest Minnesota. We could change the state of Minnesota and the surrounding states. And it would spread throughout the nation. God can do this by His Spirit, and He has chosen to do it through His church. And that's us. So at two different levels, that's my challenge. One, have you personally accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? You know, accepting Christ is not a restrictive life preserver. The world will tell you that. You're going to become one of those Christians. You decided you don't like having fun. You decided you want to be miserable your whole life. They don't get it. The gospel is foolishness to those who don't know, don't believe. It's freeing. It's what's life-giving. The ship goes down, I want a life preserver. The ship is going down. It's just a matter of when. Jesus is coming back, and it will be too late to put on a life jacket. So we need to be those that are handing out life jackets through the gospel. You and I need to be running around and wherever the opportunity presents itself, hand out the gospel. And if you are truly born again, if you are truly allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you, you are going to do it in love and compassion that they will not have legitimate grounds to reject you. They still may, but at least they won't have legitimate grounds because of what you and I are doing. So on a personal level, have you accepted Christ? But on a more of a community level, are you, first of all, prepared to share the gospel? Can you do it in eight seconds? So I want you to hold each other accountable. I want you to ask one another what the gospel is. When you run into each other the rest of the week or next Sunday, ask them, what's the gospel? Tell me the gospel. If they can't do it in eight seconds or left, we're going to have a service. We'll excommunicate everybody. <laughs> uh, wrong church. No, we won't do that. But you know what? It should be right there on the tip of our tongue all the time. Remember, God's will is that none should perish. And we know some are going to. But I don't want it to be because I couldn't share the truth of the gospel with them. And I was the one that God put in their path to share the good news. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that it's not complicated, that your message is a simple one, that Jesus truly was the Messiah, truly is the Messiah that he died for my sins and every person's sin in here, and that he was raised from the dead as evidence, as proof that that sacrifice was enough, that the power of sin, the power of death is broken, and the life of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord God, that that would be every single one of us in this room, But I know in reality there are some in this room who have never made that decision. 
I pray you would draw them by your spirit even today. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave this place feeling more equipped than when we came in this morning. And I pray, God, you would give us those divine appointments where we'll have the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel. And God, I pray that your anointing will be upon those words and that your spirit will be moving upon hearts so that we wouldn't just be planting seeds all the time, but at times we would have the great privilege of taking in that harvest and seeing people come to Christ before our very eyes. God, we ask all this that you'd receive the glory and honor as your kingdom increases. I pray now for each one of us as we go our different directions. I pray for those that will be gathering together at the, in the baby shower. God, we pray for that concert tonight in Marshall. And we pray for your protection and watching over us in the week that's coming. Lord, I pray that our lives would bring glory and honor to you and we fulfill our purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.